we're going to jump in. Uh, I know we've got others that are still coming, but we're going to continue. Actually, we're going to close tonight our series on Healthy Church. Um, and uh, as soon as we started this, I, uh, I, I, as soon as we, we got into this, I called Chris because I, I'll let him tell you what he does because I knew he had the information. And uh, so me and him worked it out and we planned it and we didn't realize that this was going to be the final service of our healthy church when we started, but the way things have gone, it has. So let's pray and then uh, we'll let Chris Dyer come up. Um, could one of you girls help me real quick? He has got his uh, study. You want these given out now? Or you want them to wait? <laughs> um, so I've got a preview, and I'm excited about it. Uh, so uh, lay one over here for D. We know she'll roll in here in a minute. So while they do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for who you are and what you are in our life. We glorify you, magnify you, and thank you above all that you are the God of the universe and we, you hold forever in your hands. And I thank you, Father, that you have put eternity into the hearts of men. And so today, Lord, we open our hearts, we open our minds, we open our spirits. Change our thought processes. Let us see things today. Let us understand things today that we've never seen and never understood before. That we can continue to reach our community in ways and in make a huge impact for the kingdom right here in Cambridge. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen, amen. amen. brother. It's all you. All right. <clears throat> Am I on? Is it on? Yeah. It's on? Good, good. Make me loud, yeah, make me loud because I'm, I have a real soft voice. Until I get excited and then I start to preach, and then it gets, then it gets high. Um, so you want me to tell them who I am? Yeah. Is that, okay. <clears throat> I'm not even sure. <laughs> uh, I have been in the Wesleyan church for, I don't know. 35, 40 years, something like that, and um, pastored a church, uh, a couple churches, and planted a church, and pastored another church, and we planted churches out of that church, and, uh, and so uh, my heart, my mind, everything about me is really missionally geared, okay? And uh, so a few years back, the district superintendent asked me to become the director of church multiplication for our district. And so that's what I've been doing the last few years. I finally retired from pastoral ministry, took this on. I'm, I'm not exactly full time, uh, three quarters time. My wife thinks I'm probably double time. Um, <laughs> travel around a lot. I go around the country. Um, you know, very, very much involved in church multiplication across the whole country and uh, go and do consultations for other districts and so on about church planting. And so that's, that's me, and uh, that's what I do. I, uh, I do teach at a couple of universities. I teach for Indiana Wesleyan University and for Ohio Christian University. And so I teach there, and I train coaches uh, for church planters, and so we, we go through that every so often. I do a cohort to train coaches uh, who are people who just 
walk with church planters as they go through all the stuff they go through because it's really, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those jobs that's very exciting. Church planting can be extremely exciting, right? And it's also like really, really hard. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the problems we've known about church planters is that for, uh, for most of them, they feel like they're very much alone in what they do. They're just out there by themselves. And so uh, when I planted my church, that's exactly what happened to me. I thought, man, this is, this is hard stuff, and I feel like I'm all by myself. And so I decided at one point that I was not going to let another church planter go through that again. And, uh, and so God provided a way for me to... Uh, to actually become a certified coach, um, certified with two different organizations, and then to uh, train coaches for the whole denomination is what I do. So I'm, I'm the denominational uh, trainer uh, for coaches. So anyway, that's, that's me. Um, nothing too exciting, you know, just, just who I am. Uh, so I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about embracing missional culture because that's just who I am, like I said, that's what I do. And, um, and so I want to just, just uh, share a little bit about that. I had not, I decided I was not going to go in on Facebook and listen to everything that you've been taught over the last X number of weeks. Uh, that, that was not pure laziness on my part, although you might think that it was. Uh, it, I just felt like I just... Uh, I wanted God just to speak into my heart and just say, you know, Chris, this is what I want you to share. And so that's, I, I just kind of wanted to run on whatever the Holy Spirit gave us for tonight. Um, I did catch a little bit of yours last week, and um, you got John Wesley in your veins, don't you? I, I heard a lot of John Wesley. Yeah, I heard a lot about John Wesley in just the little time that I, I listened I thought, oh, this guy, I mean, he's got some Wesley going on. So, and I keep telling Brent, if you'd just be a Wesley in church, I would become a member. I could become a member and attend all the time. Uh, so my understanding is that you have been going through um, a series of studies on, uh, from Tom Rainer's book on the autopsy of a deceased church. Um, that's a that's a brilliant book, by the way. That's just an excellent book, and uh, your pastors uh, chose a tr chose a great book for that study. Um, that was one of uh, seventy five books that I used to create my doctoral dissertation. <laughs> and I thought, how much do I remember of that book? <laughs> you know, after after thinking about it, I, I realized that I, I still remember a good bit of it, but. Um, my dissertation, when I, when I went through the doctoral program and I did my dissertation, uh, it was focused upon, um, well, let me say this. The, the title of the dissertation is just really terrible. It's just a really terrible title. Uh, but I realized as I was doing it that there was something that needed to be said about what it means to infuse a paradigm into an already existing culture, right? You, you hear what I'm saying? And, and so, that, and by the way, that's, that's one of the hardest things you're ever going to do is go into an existing culture and infuse a new paradigm into that. And so when I did that dissertation, I just titled it, 
uh, infusing a paradigm of mission and multiplication into the culture of the greater Ohio district of the Wesleyan Church. It's a terrible title. It's just a terrible title. I should have come up with something far more creative, but it, it, I didn't because I just leaned into that whole idea of how difficult it is to infuse a paradigm into an already existing culture. So I want to talk about this for a moment, not my, not my dissertation. I would not venture to bore you with that. Um, that, that was long and very complicated. Um, but let me just, let me say this, and, and this is not a, a new fact probably for anyone, but culture trumps everything, yep. right? Yep. Culture trumps everything. And so it trumps organization. You can have a great organization that's trying to do something, but if there's an existing culture within that organization that's bad, you, you have a real problem, right? So Trump, uh, culture trumps organization. It trumps methodology. It trumps vision. And many times trumps leadership. So you, you have no idea how many churches I've gone into, and I've realized they have a great leader here, but the leader can't do anything because the existing culture's so bad, right? Yeah. So culture trumps everything. Great leaders have been ousted from their positions due to the culture of a church. Uh, an institution, even a country, yeah. right? Uh, a few years ago, I, I watched as an amazing, truly amazing university president was told he needed to leave his position because of the backwards-looking, antiquated, legalistic culture of the denomination that owned this school. Then he went on to another school and did... A fantastic job of leading them forward. Uh, but it, it's so sad to see that happen. Culture is where we live. That's what culture is. Culture is where we live. Uh, if we're not careful, we can get so caught up in our culture, whether it's good or bad, we can get so caught up into our culture that we see everything through the lens of that culture. We call that this is a big word, we call that ethnocentrism. Now, it's a big word, but it's not hard to define, right? It's that central focus upon your own ethnicity. So it's ethnocentrism. And, and it gets in the way of seeing through any other lens because we're caught up in our own culture. So let me give you a real quick example of what I'm talking about. If we look at the scriptures through the lens of westernized culture, if we look at the scriptures through the lens of westernized culture, we're often going to miss the truth of a biblical passage. Unless we study the historical cultural context of the time during which that author wrote, the time that God spoke to that person, and that author penned that passage, unless we look at that through that historical cultural context, you're likely going to miss something important. It's just the way it works. Um, John 14, I think, is a great example of this. 
And, and I always go back to John 14 because, I, first of all, I just love that text. I love that passage. But it's a great example of this. Jesus said, and you'll know this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Right? Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. Now, that can also be translated, there are many rooms in my Father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Now, the reason I say that we have to look, through, look at that passage through that historical, uh, cultural lens is because, typically speaking, in the westernized church, we don't understand Jewish history. I, you know, I'm teaching Old Testament class right now. I'm teaching a life and faith in the New Testament, and at the same time I'm teaching an Old Testament, this is just glory for me, right? I mean, I'm just having a blast. And every time I teach the Old Testament course, guess what happens? 90% of the students in the Old Testament course either have never read the Old Testament, or they can only tell me little tidbits of what the Old Testament is about. And by the time the course is over, they all come back to me and they say, wow, this was so amazing because now I really get the New Testament, right? It's like, yeah, it was put that way for a reason. It's one book. I always tell them, I call it the First Testament, not the Old Testament, because if you call it the Old Testament, everybody thinks, well, it's just not really worth reading anymore and we get rid of it. I call it the First Testament, right? And, and so they get into that, they read it, and they're saying, man, this is so cool. I had no idea. Now I get what Jesus was talking about. Now I understand where Jesus was living, right? And so, you know, one of the, one of the favorite songs of the old church was, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. That song contains little to no theological or eschatological truth, right? We loved it. Yeah, it did. It sounded great. And, and I get so, I get kind of, can I, I just get kind of ticked off at the fact, <laughs> at the fact that uh, we have so many people who, who, are so down on contemporary music and, and their thing is always, well, there's no theology. Have you looked at some of the old hymns? <laughs> My goodness sakes. Oh, boy, you got to watch that argument. Um, that's not always a good argument, folks, let me tell you. But if you understand the context of the ancient Jewish patriarchal family then you get exactly what Jesus was saying and you know all of those Jews that were sitting there with him they got exactly what he was saying yeah. Yeah. they understood that and, and looking through the lens of that ancient context adds to the depth of the sonship of Christ Come on. right in fact 
it adds to the depth of what it means to be in the family of God. Yes. Yes. Our father, yes. the patriarch mm -hmm. of our faith, it adds to the depth of being what it means to be in the family of God. It adds to the depth when we see the New Testament writers, and I've had people question this, you know, that, that Jesus is that firstborn son or whatever. That, you know, and, and people question that. We, we can't question that because all that means is that he is the son of God who inherits all things and then has the responsibility, right, then has the responsibility to care for everyone else in the family. So Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you know what? Been to the Father's house. It's pretty nice. A lot of rooms there. There's a lot of places for all of us to stay. And as his son, I'm going to go now and I'm going to get everything ready for you. And the scripture tells us that he inherits all things, right? And so I'm going to inherit all things. And then I'm going to bring my brothers and sisters with me. And we're going to live in the Father's house. Amen. All right, that was just my sermon. Now, if we, if we look at the way that we do church, and I'm not, I don't like that phrase, but I know we use it. If we look at the way that we do church through the lens of Western culture, Come on. you know, we're going to think, and, and we do, and I've, I've seen it over and over. We think that every church everywhere should look just like the Western church. Yeah, it's the truth. In America, you know, for many years, we've believed that we have the corner on Christianity. And so we think we know how to do church better than anyone else. In fact, we know how to do Christianity better than anyone else, right? Yeah, and uh, what we don't realize is that what we know to be the church, our picture of the church has been severely blurred Come on. by evolving culture in Western Christianity. I'm going to say something tonight that I, I, don't, I don't apologize for this. The church in America is messed up. Amen. It just is. And when I have somebody tells me, oh, we want to be a New Testament church. Yeah, it's like, really? Really, you want to be a new? Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. You want to be a New Testament church? Let's talk about that, right? Uh, we have very little understanding of what the New Testament church was. And so the church, the picture that we have of the church has been severely blurred by culture, that evolving culture of Western Christianity, and, uh, and really that's another topic that I'd love to discuss some other time, but I won't do that tonight or we will never get out of here. And now we know, right, that that same evolving Western culture that has messed up the church so badly, that culture in general right now is on the attack against the church. Right? And if our culture continues to change as it has, it's scary to think of where the church will be even 10 to 20 years from now. 
So let's go back to the autopsy of the deceased church. What a lovely name. So what happens when we get stuck in a dysfunctional church culture? I'm not saying you're there. I'm just saying that throughout this series, there's been a warning, hasn't there? I mean, that's really, it's, it's like, okay, we're going to blast this warning. And when you all see certain things develop, that's a red flag. And we want to make sure we deal with it. And so what happens when we get stuck in a dysfunctional church culture? Well, let me tell you what I've experienced because part of what I do is I deal with churches that are dying. Yeah, I, I told Brent before, I'm, I'm the hospice chaplain for the, <laughs> for the Wesleyan church. You know. So when we look at a church that's dying and we see that it's stuck in that dysfunctional church culture. That culture, see, in that culture, we refuse to change, right? Come on. Yeah. We've decided, and I say we, speaking from the perspective of this church, of this dysfunctional culture, we've decided that change is of the devil. <laughs> right? Yeah. We... We're never going to have those drums in the church. We don't care. Those things are of the devil. You know? uh, and, and I've had people tell me stuff like that before. So we've decided that we're going to refuse to change. And then we look at suggested changes as worldly compromises. We're not going to do that. Okay. And, and that dysfunctional culture says we think everyone else is wrong and we're right. That dysfunctional culture is stuck in a time warp, right? We live, those people will live in the glory days of the past and they can't see the amazing work that God wants to do in the present or in the future. In fact, there's no future vision because it's all about the present. Come on. And then any talk, and this is what I find is really aggravating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> any talk of future vision is like this generalized thing. Uh, it's wishful thinking of adding younger people and adding numbers to the church. Do you know how many dying churches I've gone into? Well, we want young people. No, you don't. If you did, you'd go after them, right? You don't want younger people. Are you really looking for the lost? Okay. And of course, instead of taking those radical steps, and I, I like the word radical. You're going to find that out about me. I think Christianity is very radical. And instead of taking radical steps to advance God's kingdom in this world, that church will become focused upon maintaining the holy treasure that they have. Yeah. Wow. And we know how that works, right? So we look at the parable of the servants in Matthew chapter 25. And some of you will know that. And if you want to take, open your Bibles and go to that, that's fine. I gave you some scriptures from there. 
We go to the parable of the servants in Matthew 25. Some call it the parable of the talents. Who got into trouble? Okay, it was the man who dug a hole <laughs> and hid the master's money. And in his way of thinking, I'm going to protect it. Yeah. Ooh, boy, that's... See, that's real typical of dysfunctional church culture. We're going to protect what we have. Because we want to be holy and we want God to be happy with us. We're not going to compromise or anything like that. We're going to protect what we have. And so we look at the parable. The master went to three servants and gave them money to manage. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 15. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. And he called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. And he gave five bags of silver to one and two bags of silver to another and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. So, the Bible tells us the master returned, right? And he went to the man that had five bags of silver, and what happened? He doubled it. Yeah. The man that had five bags of silver now had ten bags of silver. Because he took whatever the master gave him and invested it, right? And by investing it, he doubled what he had. And so the master looks at him and says, hey, that's awesome. You are a good and faithful servant. Yay. That's what we need to do in the kingdom because this is a parable of the kingdom. That's what we need to do in the kingdom. Okay. So then he goes to the man with two bags of silver and he looks at the guy and he says, well, you know, I knew that you didn't have quite the potential as the other guy did, but what did you do with your two bags of silver? I doubled it. I took those two bags and I invested it. And the master says, yay, that's exactly what you needed to do. You are a good and faithful servant. Come on into the kingdom. Right? Now, then there's this other dude. And he didn't do so well. Matthew 25, verses 24 through 30. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man. Bam. Wow. Okay. Harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. There's so much theology right there. Yep. There is a ton of theology right there. You know what's wrong with the church in America? We don't know the God we say we serve. Come on, come on. And, and I keep telling churches all the time, you need a theological realignment, and you need to understand who the God is that you serve, and you need to understand what the church is that he created, right? Yes. So if I go too much on that, then we'll never get through this. So anyway, we see some theology. And then this guy says, I was afraid I'd lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back, <laughs> right? But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. 
If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, now this gets serious, right? Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. And they will have abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does it get that serious? <laughs> Is God really that serious about his kingdom? Come on. Come on. So I know that's strong stuff. But we, know, we also know that's not the only place where Jesus gets a little direct. <laughs> right? He gets... He, he could be pretty direct. So here are the facts. And I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of uh, exegesis here or anything like that. Just here are the facts. Even if we want to deny them, here are the facts. We are Jesus' church. And God has given us his gifts. He has provided opportunities and even in a culture of growing godlessness, I hear people say all the time, oh, we can't do anything in this world anymore because it's so against the church. Folks, listen to me. Have you studied the New Testament church? There was no church. And then there was a church. And then nobody wanted a church. And so all the religious leaders started persecuting the church. Right? Right? And we're worried about what's going on now? Yeah. Yeah. Who is the owner of the church? Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not come against it. Amen. All right. So we've got these opportunities. In fact, I would say this, in a godless world like we're living in now, we have more opportunities than we ever had before, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Doors are wide open. We say, oh, no, the doors are shut. Only if you're doing nothing. Come on. Only if you're doing nothing. Because, actually, we have greater opportunities now than we've ever had before to go out and reap the harvest. I said that intentionally because of the name of your church. (laughs) So the doors are wide open. People need a savior. They need hope. They need someone who's going to love them. Someone who's going to care for them. They need true representations or representatives of Jesus Christ in this world. Uh, We have places to go. We have a life-changing message to proclaim. There's a kingdom to advance. There's a mission that we have been called to. Uh, There's this harvest field that has been cultivated. Now here's, this is a little bit of theology, right? 
we don't often think about this. The harvest field has been cultivated by Satan. That's why the master has out there taking back the harvest field. You look into that scripture and, and, and it's saying, well, you know, you, you, reap, you reap harvest that you didn't cultivate. Of course. Satan's out there sowing the seed. And when Jesus said the harvest field is ripe and ready for harvest, it's, it's white and ready for harvest, he was saying, look around you at all the hungry, broken, lost, needy, unloved, unwanted, unaccepted, sick people in our world. The harvest field is right. So I, a little earlier, I was talking about teaching these classes. I intentionally have not taught graduate courses. Uh, one of my, one of my uh, mentors and professors said, man, we've got to get you into graduate school so you can teach more graduate courses. And I'm like, I don't really care. And here's the reason why. Because when I'm teaching the undergraduate classes, the harvest field is far greater. Come on. If I get into the graduate classes, then I'm teaching people who are like bent on being pastors and, you know, church leaders and so on. And, and, and they're like, oh, yes, we know all of this theology. Let us show you the way. You know, it's like, and, and so I, I'm dealing with all of those egotistical westernized church Christians who think that they know how to do church and think that, you know, our western Christianity is the right way to go. And I'm dealing with all of those people. If I stay in the undergraduate courses, I'm dealing with people who are nurses, people who are, are trying to get a degree for addiction counseling, all of that kind of stuff. And here's the truth. I deal with a lot of people who hate the church. But they're going to school because they can get a degree. And they have to take some kind of religion class. Ha <laughs> ha! Welcome to my class. <laughs> right? Yeah, welcome to my class. Come on in. And, and, and so I've got all of these people. I get notes. My wife probably saw me yesterday. I think it was. I was reading a note that I got sent uh, from a student telling me it, for 30 years they've been so lost and so troubled and so and this was an old testament course <laughs> and he says but i think i found the way right you can't beat that with a stick folks man keep me where i am if i can teach an old testament course and bring the sick and the hurting and the unwanted Come on, man. and the broken to Jesus, then give me those courses all day long, man. That's the harvest. That's the harvest. So the question here is really how will we invest the riches 
that have been entrusted to us? That's the question. So you say, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe God only gave us one bag of silver. Well, don't hide it in the ground for heaven's sake, right? And I mean that for heaven's sake. I mean that. <laughs> uh, most of us are so rich. Most churches are so rich, and I'm not talking about finances. So what are we going to do with the riches that have been entrusted to us? The silver that the master has given to us. So if we love God, we go. It's good. It's good. We go. You know, I, I tell churches all the time, man, you cannot sit in your seat every Sunday and wait for somebody to walk through your doors. And, I, and I'll tell you something. Let me, let me, let me just say this. Um, the days are long gone where people just end up going to church because they think it's the right thing to do. Yeah, the days are long gone when people just attend church because they heard the preacher was good. The days are long gone that people just say, man, I'm going to go to that church because I heard they have great music. Revivals don't work anymore like they used to. Remember back in the old days when we used to have revivals and they'd go on for a week, maybe 10 days, and people from all over the community would flood in. They don't care if you're having a revival. The world is lost. We have, we're dealing with a generation of people right now who can't stand the church. They're not sure what they think about God. They've been indoctrinated by our godless educational systems. Amen. Amen. They come into our classes at our schools, and they say, I, don't, I want nothing to do with organized religion. I'm not sure if I believe in God. Jesus is name different than Muhammad. Come on. That's what we're dealing with. How many, how many homes can we go into now where people are biblically literate? And in fact, how many homes do we go into where they have that Bible sitting on the table like they used to? And most parents now are saying, well, I'm not going to tell my child how, how to believe. That's because they don't know how to believe. Come on. Okay. We have to... Get up and go. That's the great commission. Not sit and wait as you are going. As you are going, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. We're going to say that in a little bit. So if we love God, we go. If we love people, we will go. If we believe people need Jesus, we will go. John Wesley said, and you probably already quoted this, you have nothing to do but to save souls. That's powerful stuff. He told that to his pastors. Guys, you have nothing to do but to save souls, so get about the task. Go out and do it.
Man. So what does all of that look like for your church? Uh, where am I, honey? How late is it? <laughs> Something I wrote for our district helps us identify where a church may be on the life cycle. Okay? So you've seen this. You've, you've seen this in the autopsy of a deceased church. You know, you, but, but it defines this idea of where a church is on a life cycle. And so I wrote this. The dying church is a church that has resisted change, experienced consistent decline, has no vision for the future. There is little left in the present. The church lacks missional leadership, and even though the remaining congregants may speak of growth, the primary mission is to keep the doors open until it is impossible to do so. Wow. Wow. This church generally is generally set on resisting change until the church dies. In most cases, there is little reason for their continued existence of the church other than to meet the needs of the few members that still attend. While a dying church may have had a productive past, it can see no way forward. I went to a church just recently. It took them 10 years to get to this point. They had been dying for 30 years. They asked me to come and speak to them. They had a nice little building. They had invested everything they had in the building. They had a nice little building. Seven people left and $500 in the bank. And they weren't sure, they weren't sure what they needed to do. I'm just saying, folks, this, this is reality. This is, this is what happens. So anyway, I went on. I talked about the surviving church. I don't think I'm going to read all of that tonight. It's, it'll bore you to death, maybe. And then I talked about the striving church. Okay? And then I talked about the thriving church. Now listen to this. The thriving church is the church that is on mission with God. Okay, theological realignment. God is on a mission to redeem his lost creation, and we are supposed to be with him. Right? Okay, so they're on, they're, the church that's on mission with God, they may not be doing everything perfectly, but they know where they are going, and they're on the way. They understand vision and leadership. They have solid ministries and are multiplying. They're multiplying mission, disciples, leaders, and in some cases, campuses and kingdom communities. These are churches that are making an impact on their ministry area. Now listen, and measure success by kingdom metrics rather than buildings, budgets, and what I usually say, buts. Okay? But attendance, they understand church health and have come to terms with what they understand as God's purpose for their congregation. Thriving churches are few and far between. Many churches are still in the striving category, which is not a bad place to be. However, the reality is most churches are in the dying or surviving categories. 
So over the last two years, I've helped four churches die. <laughs> the guy, one of the leaders of the denomination said, uh, you need to talk to Chris, he's just killing it. And, uh, and then he said, no, he said, literally, he's just killing it. And I <laughs> wasn't sure how to take that, but uh, it's not something I enjoy. It's not something that we want to see in the district but some churches are not going to make it. And we have to go in and talk to them about that. And uh, I've been elected to do that. So, as I said, you know, we, we found there, there's a need for a hospice chaplain across the district to go in and kind of help these churches die with dignity. Celebrate their past die with dignity. Now, <clears throat> that sounds bad, but let me, let me explain something to you. So one of those four churches is closed for good. They waited so long before they closed their doors that their facilities and everything had just deteriorated to the point where we had nothing left. There was about four people left in the church. They had about $300 in their bank account. And we couldn't find a pastor who wanted to take on that mess. It was just a mess. It was, it, just to get in there and do anything was going to cost $250,000, right, just to get in there and do anything with that facility. And so they waited so long, we finally just, you know... We have no choice. We're just going to close it, sell it. Here's the rugged truth. A lot of those buildings are just, they're just taken down. They're just destroyed. Beautiful, beautiful church at one time with beautiful stained glass windows and had a wonderful past, but it got to the point where it was just dead. And if the building is worth anything, well, you might have a business move in there, right? I saw one, one church turned into a flower shop you know, uh, but a lot of times they just tear those buildings down. So one of the churches closed for good, but two of the churches, and this is where it gets fun for me. Whoops, I just knocked that thing off. Oh well. Here's here's where it gets fun for me. Two of the churches have been replanted with leaders who are apostolically gifted. They're church planters, and, uh, and they're making disciples and baptizing new believers. You know, I went into this little congregation, and I mean, 12 people left, and I said, y'all love this church? Yeah. Well, what are you going to do about that? Because if you keep going the way you are, this is going to close, and there's not going to be anything left. Come on. And so I said to them, you know, Here's a plan. Let's close your church now. Let's just close it. All those people who have been in leadership that's held this church back for the last 30 years, 
they have no authority anymore. We're just going to close the church, and then we're going to take whatever is in the bank account and this nice facility you have, and we're going to give it to a church planter who's apostolically gifted, who knows how to get out and, and do missional work in the community, who knows what to do in order to reach the lost, and we're going to give that church, that facility, and this property to them, and then you're going to sit back and say, look at what God is doing as this church comes to life. And so I said, close the church, we're going to let it die, and then we're going to have a resurrection. Anybody in favor of that, right? They said, you think that can really happen? You think we can find a church planter? I said, well, it's not always real easy, but I think we can. God sent a church planter within a month after we closed the church, came from North Dakota, sent a church planter within a month after we closed the church. They still have not launched the church yet. It's still not officially launched. But Easter Sunday morning, even though they weren't having a service, they gathered 61 people from their community. Somebody gave their heart to Christ, right? This church hasn't seen 61 people for the last 30 years, right? I mean, and, and they haven't even launched yet. The pastor sends me this note. Hey, guess what happened today? Awesome, man. I'm praising God with you. You know what he's been doing? And here's the key. The church is making its presence in the community. Going out and helping people, loving people, caring for people, doing Jesus stuff. Come on. Doing Jesus stuff. And because they've been out in the community doing all that stuff, people are saying, I don't, I don't know what's going on there, but I'm going to find out. You said it last week, didn't you? Church is on fire and people want to come out and watch it burn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not concerned about getting people into his church. He's concerned about getting into his community being Jesus in the community, that incarnational life, being Jesus in the community, reaching people with love and care and concern and helping them find Jesus. And, you know, he's even said it himself. If they can find Jesus, if they never come to our church, but they go to the church down the road, it's still a win for the kingdom, come on. right? Come on. It's still a win for the kingdom. I said, when are you going to launch that church anyway? Oh, probably not till the fall. Well, keep on working, man. Keep on working, keep on working right? We had a church that closed about a month ago, and now I'm looking for a church planter for that location. And this Friday, next, next no, this Friday, this Friday, uh, I'll meet with that church planter and see if God calls them to that place because I, the prerequisite for any church planter is you've got to tell me that God has called you. If God has not called you, I don't want you. Come on. Right? Yeah. So your church is in a good place. I'm going to wrap this up. Is that okay? Okay. <laughs> your church is in a good place, and here's why. You have, a, you have a pastor and leaders who are passionate about their faith, who are willing to change, who are willing to go on mission with God to help him redeem his lost creation. Uh, you have an idea of where you need to go and how to get there, and so you're in a good place. However, you all need to stay focused upon the kingdom of God and the big redemptive mission. 
don't get caught up in, well, that's too risky. Come on. Come on. Don't do that. Um, you, you need to decide how you will invest in the kingdom. What will you give? What risk will you take? How will God use you in this mission field? In what ways can you live redemptively like Jesus? And by the way, that's a personal thing for us. You know, churches are very dependent upon outreach events. I've got news for you. You're God's missionary. Just get out and live redemptively in your world. Okay. And then, what will you do with your money? <gasps> oh my goodness, he talked about money. He mentioned money. I can always tell when a church is serious about being on mission with God because the budget will always tell it. The budget will always tell it. Um, in my last church, they gave 5% of their total income to global mission work. They didn't give anything locally. So they were doing little to nothing in the community and in a city of around 55,000 people, the church was totally unknown. So I said, when I went there, I said, give me 10% of our total income for missions. And you can keep your 5% for global missions, but give me 5% for local missions. And if you'll do that, then it will flip the culture of the church and God will do things you've never seen before. Yes. We ended up, because of the growth of the church, and the finances and so on. We ended up, that was $25,000 that we gave to foreign missions every year and 25000 that we gave to local missions every year. That 25000 literally grew because people would say, well, we, that's not enough. We're going to have to give more. And so it went up to thirty and 35000 for local missions. Okay. And so by the time I'd left the church, we'd paid off this massive debt it had become one of the most influential organizations in the community, and we were talking about raising our missions, giving another 5 to 6%, right? We baptized 20 new believers every year. There were over 20 discipleship groups in the church, and we helped plant three churches. Plus, we planted the church out of our church, and we were getting ready to plant another church. Can I ask you, what can God do when we truly get on mission with him. What can God do? So I'm not going to go any further. I just want you, there's some other stuff there that you might want to read. But I want us to stand together and we are going to read Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. And then Acts 1.8. And then I'm going to turn this over to your pastor. Um, and... Uh, we were going to have a little Q&A, but man, I went too long. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. I have it on the back of your sheet. It's the New Living Translation. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Amen. And here's what I believe. Disciples, true disciples, make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It's a multiplicative thing. It's not just, you know, I try to look back on my life and think, how many disciples have I made? Because if I've only made one, then I feel like I've failed. But I also want to look and see if that one disciple I made is making another disciple. And if that disciple is making another disciple, because this should be multiplicative and it should be contagious. Amen. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit that makes us witnesses where we are and where we need to go. Amen. I'm going to pray with you. We'll let your pastor take it from there. Father, so thankful tonight for this opportunity to share. And, Father, thankful for your word and thankful for your truth. But, Father, most of all, I'm thankful that it doesn't matter what denomination we belong to. What matters is that we are all on mission with you to reach the world around us because there is the harvest field It is white and ready for harvest. And we have the message that changes everything. And now we want to go out of this place, Father, when we leave here, and just go out and take back the field for our Father. Amen. Yes, Lord. And so thank you, Father, for not only promising your presence and giving us this mandate, Thank you, Jesus, for that mandate. It's it's more than a mandate. It's an invitation to be on mission with you, to travel with you, to do your work with you. So thank you, Father, for that. Thank you, Lord, for the power that comes from on high that enables us to be witnesses wherever we go. And we praise you for what you're going to do in the kingdom and through this church and through these leaders. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Amen.